It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. This is the hour of doom. And gloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to DMB's Survival Medicine Podcast, a paragon of practicality in a parsimonious world. I was trying to say parsimonious there. Parsimonious. But, yes, you but said a, it. But after you say paragon and practicality, parsimonious is, <laughs> is not a, an tongue easy twister, word. <laughs> that's right. Well, anyhow, our show is hosted by me, Joe Alden, MD, and her, Amy Alden, ARMP of doomandbloom.net, the reader's choice source for both education and the best, best Health savings account eligible medical kits for austere settings. When we say DMB, we don't mean Dave and Buster's. We mean doom and bloom. <laughs> uh, big changes around here. First, we're changing our format. You're going to hear more frequent, shorter shows to go straight to the information you're looking for. And next, we're cutting out a whole lot of our housekeeping up front. But we still would like to keep our medical license, so listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Wow. Good for you. <laughs> hey, we all know that infectious disease is a major concern in good times or bad, and the family medic has to be able to identify some of the deadliest. Now, we just wrote a book about infectious diseases and the antibiotics that treat them, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. We've done our research on some of the worst illnesses that can occur even in countries that have advanced medical systems. There are infections out there, however, that are often fatal and aren't in our book because they can't be treated with antibiotics. And I'm talking about viruses. What are the worst viruses on the planet? Now, that depends. Are you looking at the total number that died from a particular disease over the course of history? Are you monitoring the number that die every year in the present, in 2020? Or is it the percentage of people that die if they get infected? Well, in any case, the statistics can be pretty grim. So let's talk about a few of these. I'll start with one that's gotten a lot of press over the years, human immunodeficiency virus, also known as HIV. The HIV virus has been a major issue in the news since the 1980s, but cases were reported in the Congo as far back as 1959. A lot of diseases seem to start off in the Congo. You don't hear much about the virus and the acquired immune deficiency syndrome it causes, called AIDS, because progress in antiviral treatments have decreased death rates in developed countries. Originally mutated from a virus found in monkeys and apes, HIV still is a huge epidemic in sub-Saharan Africa. It kills between 1 and 2 million people every year. HIV is transmitted through bodily fluids and works by turning off your immune system. This prevents your natural defenses from killing the virus, but also causes a wide range of sometimes really crazy exotic diseases, including certain very rare cancers. These types of problems are called opportunistic because they're opportunistic they invade only those people who have weakened immunity. Early symptoms resemble the flu, with headache, fever, fatigue, rash, and muscle and joint pain, and that could be HIV. Some develop ulcers in the mouth or genital region as it goes further along. Others develop diarrhea or other bowel symptoms. In fact, when I was working the ER in the 1980s, they called the first cases of this gay bowel disease because 
It happened in homosexual men and had mostly intestinal or gastrointestinal symptoms. Interestingly enough, though, some people developed no symptoms at all for years, like famously Magic Johnson, the basketball player. Let's talk a little bit about hepatitis. There's all sorts of hepatitises. Uh, there's hepatitis A, B, C, D, and E. The most common are A, B, and C. Hepatitis is an inflammation of the liver, which can be caused by a DNA virus, hepatitis B, or an RNA virus, hepatitis A and C. I guess I should define DNA versus RNA. Some people may not know the difference. DNA is genetic material, which is present in nearly all living organisms. It's the carrier of genetic information. RNA is the messenger that carries instructions from the DNA for controlling the production of proteins. With some viruses, RNA rather than DNA carries the genetic information. The RNA is the genetic reservoir. Hepatitis A is passed through contaminated food and water or by contact with the feces of those people that are infected. Hepatitis B and C are primarily transmitted through blood or other bodily fluids and also by sharing needles. Hepatitis A and B can be spread sexually, and they're spread sexually more often than hepatitis C, say. And there are also very rare types like hepatitis D and E. Symptoms for hepatitis really are pretty similar no matter what type of hepatitis you have. The victims often experience yellowing of the skin and eyes. That's known as jaundice, and that's caused by dysfunction of the liver, along with fever, loss of appetite, fatigue, a sort of a brownish urine. They can have joint pain, and they can have really any of a number of stomach or intestinal symptoms like nausea and vomiting, things like that. Hepatitis A is often self-limited. That goes away after a period of time. That's called self-limited. In a minority of cases, the disease, however, could have prolonged effects. Chronic liver disease most often occurs in hepatitis B and C. Five million Americans have one or the other. Either can result in scarring of the liver, that's called cirrhosis, of the liver and can lead to failure of the organ. Together, viral hepatitis accounts for more than 1 million deaths a year worldwide. Now, that may seem terrible, but it's important to realize there are 200 million people living with hepatitis C alone worldwide. Of course, we can't talk about viruses, or at least deadly viruses, without talking about the Ebola virus. It's famously known for that epidemic in West Africa in 2014 that killed over 10,000 people. That was about 40 to 45% of those people who wound up getting the infection. It's thought to have been transmitted by eating poorly cooked bushmeat, including certain fruit bats that are a natural, I guess, oh, reservoir, there's that word again, of the disease. They don't get sick, but eating them can kill you. Ebola received widespread coverage in the U.S. when a Liberian national arrived in Texas with the disease and wound up infecting two nurses at a local hospital. That was due to lax isolation protocols, and I think that there was also issues with knowing how to properly take off and put on personal protection gear in these kinds of circumstances. Luckily, the disease did not take hold in the U.S., and stricter controls were developed as a result of the scare. We're much more prepared now for this type of infection than we were just five years ago. Ebola is highly contagious and can be passed through close contact with bodily fluids. It's thought not to be airborne, although some studies did suggest otherwise. If Ebola was easily transmitted that way, I can tell you it would have been a worldwide pandemic with a big death rate. Early symptoms include the sudden onset of fever, fatigue, joint and muscle pain, sore throat, and cough. A lot of sort of nonspecific symptoms you see with just about any kind of infectious disease. But these rapidly progress to vomiting and diarrhea, often bloody, rashes, bruising, and spontaneous internal bleeding. 
Outbreaks like the one presently in the Congo, by the way, that's also where Ebola originated, continue to plague certain areas of Africa, and they seem to be coming a little more frequently, and we're seeing more deaths. If you think Ebola is a problem, there's another hemorrhagic fever called Marburg virus, and that one is very similar to Ebola in terms of its symptoms, but it's just a different virus. And the problem with it is that the death rate of those documented so far, at least with Marburg virus, is close to 90%. It was first found in primates and bats. It interferes with the blood's ability to clot, just like Ebola does. Of course, that ends up resulting in multiple organ failure, severe dehydration, the death of all sorts of internal tissues. Another hemorrhagic virus, a third one, is Lassa virus, L-A-S-S-A, first found in rats in West Africa. Although nicknamed Ebola light, it actually killed as many people in West Africa as Ebola did during the epidemic there. When infected persons show symptoms, they are very similar to Ebola or Marburg, and the death rate's about 15 to 20 percent. That's why they call it Ebola light. But the difference is that Lassa virus infects over 300,000 people each year, and the majority of these, interestingly enough, have absolutely no symptoms whatsoever. All right, let's move away from hemorrhagic fevers. Let's talk about hantavirus, H-A-N-T-A virus. Hantaviruses are a family of RNA viruses that may cause fatal lung-based diseases. They were first isolated in 1995, near where I spent my early career in Miami, Florida. Over time, hantavirus pulmonary syndrome, or HPS, was officially recognized as coming from rodents, notably the cotton rat in Florida, the deer mouse in Canada, and on the east coast, the white-footed mouse. The disease may be transmitted in the air as a result of dry rodent droppings. Cases have been reported in at least 36 U.S. states, and variations are seen in South America and other parts of the world. Hantavirus often presents as a flu-like illness, just like everything else, fever, cough, shortness of breath, headache, muscle aches. The victim becomes lethargic, though, because they wind up having a lack of oxygen. The respiratory failure actually comes pretty quickly in those people. It doesn't infect millions of people, but 36% of all sufferers will die from the disease. Let's talk about rotavirus, R-O-T-A virus. The World Health Organization reports that this virus kills more than a half a million children annually worldwide. They even believe that every child on the planet has been infected at least once with it. You get it by ingesting bad food and water or touching surfaces that are contaminated with infected feces. Like cholera and other bacterial diseases that cause diarrhea, most of these children die from dehydration. And that, of course, is a big issue with children. They don't weigh that much. They don't have that much fluid. So as a result, they get dehydrated very easily. The rotavirus will infect the cells that line the gut, and it emits a toxin which causes symptoms in two to three days that can last a week or more. They can include severe watery diarrhea, fever, vomiting, and abdominal cramps. Coupled with a loss of appetite, children rapidly go into a state of dehydration. And if fluids are not replaced quickly, especially with IVs, they may die from the disease. This is actually the most common cause of death in some less developed areas of the world. Although a vaccine exists for rotavirus, even vaccinated kids may get sick multiple times. Future infections, however, tend to be milder. The virus is rarely lethal, thank goodness, in adults, but very heartbreaking that it's so dangerous to children. By the way, symptoms of dehydration may be hard to discern in kids, especially children too young to really tell you what they're feeling, what their symptoms are, 
but they include decreased volume of urine, usually very dark, darker than normal, dry mouth, feeling dizzy when upright, skin that tense up when it's stretched, usually your skin snaps back when you pick it up or pinch it, but it usually goes right back to the way it is. If it stays that way, that's a sign of dehydration. Kids crying with no tears or very little tears, that's another sign of dehydration and kids that can't tell you what's going on with them, young infants, and unusual sleepiness or fussiness in infants as well. Another well-known virus, much more well-known than rotavirus, is rabies. That's a virus that's transmitted with an infected animal scratches or bites another human. Mostly bites, because saliva from an infected animal has the heaviest viral load, which can also spread infection if it just splatters into the eyes, mouth, or nose of somebody nearby. Globally, dogs are the most common animal involved, accounting for more than 99% of rabies cases in a lot of countries. But in the Americas, well, you might be surprised to know that bat bites, bats, are indeed the most common cause of rabies infections in humans. Less than 5% are from dogs. Rodents, by the way, are often blamed for rabies, but they're very rarely infected with rabies, as a matter of fact. And it's very interesting to me, birds that are given the rabies virus via injection seem to experience no illness whatsoever. Rabies caused more than 17,000 deaths worldwide in 2015. That happened mostly in Africa and Asia. The period between infection and the first symptoms, that's called the incubation period, is usually one to three months in humans, but can be much longer. This is why it's very difficult to maybe tell early stages because it's so long ago since the animal bite or the causative factor actually occurred. Well, this, along with a death rate of over 100% if it's untreated, is the reason why humans suspected of being exposed are given a series of vaccinations and antibodies as soon as they possibly can get them. Uh, symptoms usually begin as a fever and a headache. The illness progresses, however, to affect the nervous system, causing paralysis in a lot of cases. Rabies causes significant alterations in mental status, including confusion, agitation, anxiety, paranoia, hallucinations, and even general delirium. Now, one unusual sign of rabies is hydrophobia, the fear of water. Because of difficulty swallowing despite severe thirst, water seems to panic victims. It's at this point that victims produce a huge amount of saliva, making them appear to foam at the mouth. Once they hit this point, death usually occurs within a few days. There are a couple of different forms of rabies. Hydrophobia is commonly associated with what they call furious rabies, which is 80% of those infected. The remaining 20% mostly exhibit signs of paralysis. We call that paralytic rabies and numbness and other neurologic symptoms. This form doesn't seem to cause hydrophobia as often as the other. Let's talk a little bit about smallpox. You may wonder why am I talking about smallpox? The World Health Assembly declared the world free of smallpox. You may wonder then why I'm talking about smallpox. Well, simply put, there are a lot of diseases that aren't common now that could become common if we're thrown off the grid due to some major disaster. It pays to know how to identify them. Before its theoretical eradication, humans battled smallpox for thousands of years and the disease killed one in three of those people that were infected. Survivors were left with permanent scars, really nasty scars, and sometimes they were blind if they had smallpox sores on their eyes. You could actually get it on your eye. Smallpox could be transmitted by, through the air or by contact with victims of con or contaminated items of theirs. So you see that it was very, very contagious. Mortality rates were far higher outside of Europe, though. Smallpox was something that was commonly seen in Europe and killed one in three. But people elsewhere had little contact with the virus previously, so they had no natural immunity to it. 
Historical accounts estimate that 90% of the native population in some areas of the Americas died from smallpox introduced by European settlers. Smallpox killed 300 million people just in the last century before its eradication. Now, after a period of 7 to 17 days, you will be able to identify a series of flu-like symptoms, fever, headache, fatigue, aches and pains, severe back pain, and vomiting, very commonly seen, this is the beginning of smallpox. But as time progresses, you see the rash. A wave of flat red spots appears on the face, the arms, the legs, spreads to the torso, and even the oral cavity over time. Many become small blisters which fill up with pus and they scab over, falling off maybe a week or so later. These leave deep pitted scars once you have recovered from the disease. Now what's the difference between the sores in smallpox and chickenpox? Chickenpox is a very closely related virus, but chickenpox sores show up at different times in different areas. They're mostly on the stomach, chest, and back, rarely on the palms or the soles of your feet. That's not what you can say about smallpox. Smallpox sores appear all over the body at the same time, mostly on the face, arms, and legs, and sometimes indeed on the palms and soles, and all look about the same. Whew, that is a lot of information about viruses, some of the most deadly viruses that you'll see out there. Well, I haven't talked about the deadliest one, and I haven't talked about a lot of them that are passed by mosquitoes, by mosquito bites, sure enough. So we'll go ahead and talk about that in a future show. Hey, got an idea for a show topic or just want to ask a cranky old geezer or the pretty, pretty princess a question? Well, don't delay, Ray. Send us an email or sign up to connect with us in these ways. By email, you can contact us at drbonespodcast at AOL. You can find us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And our YouTube channel is Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Of course, don't forget Facebook. It's very simple. Doom and Bloom. And don't forget to check out our books, DVDs, medical kits, and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. And hey, by the way, would you like to experience the joy that comes with helping the elderly? Well, <laughs> here's the elderly guy you can help. You can help me, but you can also help yourself and your family by following our website at doomandbloom.net. You'll find all sorts of stuff that you'll need to succeed even when everything else fails. Just hit the subscribe button right there on the tippy top of the main page. You will definitely be glad you did. That's all we have for today. See you next time on the Survival Medicine Podcast with Joe and Amy Alton. See ya. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. To contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. In these days of terrorists, active shooters, and worse, every school, workplace, and homestead should have the equipment to save a life. The first aid bleeding control module is meant to provide the items you need to stop hemorrhage. It's compact, lightweight, and has easy-to-read waterproof instructions. If every teacher's desk, worker station, and car or truck had one, have no doubt it would save lives. Available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net.